throughout our, our REACH series, we've been looking at how Jesus reached people with the gospel, and we've been looking at a lot of things he did, and he was great at doing that were good at communicating with people who didn't know him and wanted to introduce them to the gospel of the kingdom. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the power of asking questions, how you ask questions and how that can be a crucial part of reaching people with, uh, for Jesus. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 2. So if you could turn there. Um, sorry, I just passed that to you. So uh, we're going to read that in just a second. Let me, let me ask you if, you, if you don't know, have a guess as to what you think the first recorded words of Jesus are as a, as a, as a person, right? You may, think about, he's been God for trillions and trillions of years, back into eternity past. He takes on flesh in Jesus as a baby. Obviously, as a baby, you can't speak yet. He has to learn to talk. What's the first thing do you think that Jesus is going to say that will get written down? Hey, just have a think as to what you would do if it was you, um, because first words can be really famous, and first words actually can be very significant in telling us a lot about what's coming. Sometimes first words are so famous that they're more famous than the person who spoke them. Like, uh, or, or even you might not have read the book, but you know the opening line. You know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. But you haven't read Charles Dickens or A Tale of Two Cities, but you still know it, because first words are very significant sometimes. And So what do you think Jesus' first recorded words are? Okay. I'm going to read from Luke 2, beginning at verse 41. Oh, we will come to that. You, you, <laughs> now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. This is the word of God. So God has taken on flesh in Jesus Christ. He's become a person. He's been born as a baby. He's learned to talk. He's learned to walk. He's learned to use the toilet. He's memorized his Bible. He's learned how to be a carpenter or he's being apprenticed in his dad's carpentry shop. And now he's come of age, which in a Jewish context at that age, you would do at age 12. And he's now in Jerusalem, in God's city, going into God's temple, God's house. And he's going to say his first words. He's going to, we're going to hear him talking for the first time. And remember, this is the only reference we have to Jesus in his entire life between being a baby and being 30. So it's kind of pretty important. What's he going to say? Or what would you say? No okay. running. What? No running. No running. You think that's the first thing? No, stop running in the temple. That's going to be your first line, okay? I don't know how you, how would you do it? Morning, everybody. I'm the Messiah. Terribly nice to meet you. <laughs> Bow before me, insolent dogs. What would you do? I don't know. I mean, if you'd seen... All the things that were going on in the temple for all those years. What would you do? 
Maybe you'd say something very deep and profound about yourself. I am the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the bread of... What would you say? We find out in verse 46. After three days, Mary and Joseph found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. That's what Jesus is doing. After trillions of years of God waiting to become flesh, the first time he's saying anything, he is asking them questions and listening carefully to the answers. And his first recorded words are just a verse, late, verse or two later. There were also questions. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? If you've read the Gospels, you'll know that's a pattern throughout Jesus' ministry. He is continually asking questions, far more questions proportionally than you would think you would possibly need to do. <laughs> Don't worry, no one noticed. Um, asking, asking far more questions than you would think most people do. If you read biographies of prominent people um, in history, I don't know, biography of Julius Caesar or Shakespeare or Napoleon or, I don't know, Winston Churchill, you will find the vast majority of the things they say are statements or speeches and very little of them are questions. Whereas when you read about Jesus in his biographies, in the Gospels, he is continually asking questions. I counted them once. I had nothing better to do. And there are 283 questions in the Gospels. That's a huge amount relative to the things he says overall. And they're all good ones. And he asks those questions to do a number of different things which we can learn from. Sometimes he just asks questions to clarify what people believe. So he says things like, so what's written in the law? How do you read it? He's just saying, let me understand what you think better. That's, why he's, that's some of the things that questions do, right? They clarify things. He asks questions to provoke people to think carefully about things that they haven't really thought about before. Who do people say that I am? And they say, mm. and he says, well, who do you say that I am? Oh, right. So to try and get people thinking about things that they otherwise might not. He asks questions to draw people out. He says, who touched me? He says, what were you guys talking about on the road back there? And they're having an argument about who's the greatest. He says, what were you talking about back there? He's trying to draw people out to get them to engage. He asks questions to turn the tables on his opponents. So people come and say, should, teacher, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he says, anyone got a coin? All right. Whose head, whose image is that? And they say, Caesar. Whose inscription is that? And they say, Caesar. Saying, effectively saying, so you're walking around with an image of a God and a statement that he is God in your pockets, and you're trying to catch me out on being idolatrous about Caesar? No, 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 no. That's not how this works. Yeah, he's asking questions to turn the tables on them. He does it a lot. They come and say, teacher, what do you think about this? And he says, well, okay, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Tell me, do you think John the Baptist got his authority from God or from people? And they say, oh, we don't want to answer that, because if we answer that, there'll be a riot. And he says, okay, well, I won't answer yours then. He does it all the time. If da- hey, this psalm, David calls the Messiah Lord. So how can he be his son? You see, he's using questions to turn the tables on his opponents sometimes. And also, he asks questions to find out how he can best serve people. He, says, he says, does this a lot. You know, Children, have you caught any fish? It sounds like a funny thing. He's like... I'm going to try and, I've made a barbecue for you, basically. But have you got anything? Or he says, how long has your son been like this? Having these epileptic seizures, effectively. How, how long has he been like this? I want to know how I can help. He says to the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? You might think, well, it's obvious. He wants to be healed of blindness. Not necessarily. Sometimes people with disabilities would say, actually, I just want to experience the love of God like anyone else. 
That's not evil. But he says, what do you want me to do? You see, he's asking questions to find out how can I serve people. So there's a whole load of ways in which Jesus uses questions. But don't you find it fascinating that the one person in history who in principle never needed to ask a question asks more and better questions than anyone who's ever lived? I think that's fascinating, isn't it? He's, he's God. He could just go, I don't, need to, I don't need to ask, but he does it all the time. And I think there's something we can learn from that because he is modeling to us how to reach people. If Jesus asks people questions, we can too. We should be. In fact, we should be more than he was asking questions because we suffer from something that he didn't have at all, which is gross ignorance about everything, right? Anybody else in here grossly ignorant about nearly everything, right? I know a lot about a couple of little things. I know nothing at all about 99.9% of human experience. Neither do you. So we have to ask questions in order to learn And that's not true just of facts, but of people, isn't it? So we get to know people by asking questions. What's it like to be you? Where'd you grow up? How did that shape you? What's your opinion on this? Can I help with that? Could you help me with that? How do you feel about this thing that's going on in the nation? Why do you say that? Yeah, we ask questions to learn. And in doing that, of course, we cultivate humility in ourselves because we're effectively saying to people, I need you to be my teacher because I don't know as much about this as you do. So please help me. And that, Luke says, was true of Jesus himself. Chapter 2, verse 51. He went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them, and he grew in wisdom. Jesus needed to grow in wisdom like anyone else. And he did that, we assume, in large part by asking questions. So questions help us find out stuff. But they also do the exact same things for us in reaching people that they did for Jesus. They help us when we're reaching people with the gospel. Right? They do the exact same things. Questions clarify. When you meet someone who's not a believer, and of course there'd be people in this room, you're not believers yet, you're exploring Christianity in some way, or you're just visiting. It's great to have you with us, by the way, and thank you so much. for. I think it takes a lot of courage to come and sit and listen to someone talking from a completely different outlook to you, so it's just great to, that you're here. But actually, if I'm meeting somebody who's not a believer, you want to clarify, what, what do you believe? How do, how, does, how do things work in your mind? How do you see the world? can be very helpful to clarify, because if you don't do that, you can assume, can't you? You can assume that someone believes something they don't, and you can respond badly to them. I vividly remember being on a radio phone-in show in Toronto once, um, about 10 years ago. I was promoting a book, and I'm on this phone-in show, and these people are coming in with their questions about Christianity, and there's, I don't know how many thousand people phoning in or listening, whatever, and I'm getting these questions, and the very first one This guy says, so the thing I want to know is, why does God allow awful things like children dying? Now, at that point, you've got to clarify something quickly. In fact, I think I need to clarify two things. Is this person a Christian, and they're asking, how do I answer this well? Or is this person not a Christian, partly because this issue has not been resolved in their life? And secondly, I want to know, what's behind that question? Is this like a, a theoretical thing where you've seen, turned on the news and seen children dying of something? Or is this personal to you? And if you don't, answer, don't get that, you might end up in a real mess because you're answering a theoretical question, but they're asking a personal one. It turned out this guy was not a Christian and that he had recently lost a child himself. I'm thinking, wow, if I hadn't clarified what he meant, I would have missed him by a mile. He would have thought Christians are just heartless people who don't understand. 
So you've got to ask questions sometimes to clarify. Another example I, I use, because it's a question you get asked a lot in London, I find, particularly, is people, a lot of people say something, uh, something like, isn't Christianity just a white thing? Isn't it it's a white man's religion? What do you, why would you? And at that point, it's kind of important, particularly as a white person, but it's important anyway, just to kind of clarify. So tell me, what, draw them out on that. What do you mean? Do you mean, for instance, that Christianity has always been a white thing, as in Jesus, the apostles, the church fathers are all white? Because if that's what you're saying, I don't think that's true, and I can show you why. But or are you saying, no, Christianity is a global faith, and has been, but in the last few hundred years, it's been hijacked by white people for their own ends as a power grab. And if that's what you mean, then I think you're probably right, right? You've got to clarify, haven't you? Because I don't know, do I agree with you or do I disagree with you on this point? I need to understand what you mean before I start engaging. And questions like Jesus uses them, just clarify. They help illuminate what someone else means so you can serve them better. Questions provoke people to think about things. I was sitting in Starbucks a few years ago. I was writing a chapter of something, and I was looking at the question of what's wrong with the world, and so I thought, I'll just ask this guy. So I turned to him and said, can I just ask you, I'm writing this book, and what do you think's wrong with the world? And he says, religion and national borders. I'm like, okay, so I'm an English pastor. That's not a great start, right? Okay, good, so I'm wrong with the world, good. Um, so I said, okay, right, so you know, tell me more about that, and we begin talking, and I, over, and so, so the solution to the world's problems in a way is you've got to get rid of religion and get rid of national borders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So that's like the vision of John Lennon in Imagine, isn't it? Imagine there's no heaven, no religion, nothing to kill or die for, right? That's the, the, yeah, and he's like, yes, that's it. And then I felt like I'd built enough of a rapport with him to ask a much more mischievous question, which is, does it worry you that it's also the same vision that Joseph Stalin had? That's why he killed 20 million of his own people. Like, you know, state atheism, no national borders, global government... Does that worry you at all? And he begins, you know, he gets a bit more, you know, he's great, back and forth and so on. Eventually, this conversation's going on. He eventually goes, who are you? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm actually a Christian pastor. Oh, I might have guessed. Oh, it was really funny. And I, I just thought, I'm not saying he left that Starbucks becoming a Christian, but I'm pretty certain he left that Starbucks having been provoked to think about some things that he may never have considered. He might have just assumed that things were true, and I was trying to challenge that. Questions can draw people out. They can get people talking even just to build a friendship. I mean, that's not a Christian observation necessarily, is it? That's just something that we all do. If we're emotionally aware, we want to find out about other people's lives. Something Dale Carnegie would tell you. You want to, don't just talk about yourself, ask other people. But you can also draw people out in talking about what they believe partly so that you can see and get them thinking through how the things they believe fit together. And sometimes the funny thing is, they don't quite. I don't know if you've experienced that. But if you look at polls... I've done, I've done this a number of times, questionnaires in the street where you ask people things, what they believe, and you'll find that the answers are often inconsistent in weird ways. So you'll say, early on in the poll, do you believe in a personal God? No. I think God is, if he exists, he's more like a force or something like that. A few questions later, who do you think Jesus was? And they say, the son of God. You think, how can a non-personal God have a son? but they've probably never thought about it, literally. And you're, in asking the question, you're helping draw them out to articulate things they may believe, but might not particularly have put together yet. Now, that's not always true, but it is sometimes true, and it can really help in that respect. Questions for, they can turn the tables on people. This is more like what happens when you're debating with people. Um, so it's not always, you know, the, a great thing to do. Um, but you can turn the tables on people by getting them to think about whether or not the thing they believe actually needs to be challenged and it's not just the thing you believe. Because otherwise, you st- is that me? 
Otherwise, you spend the whole time defending your view, and you might not, and you think this is actually isn't quite fair. I want to challenge perhaps what you think too. And some of you have heard me tell the story before, but I had two teenage girls a few years ago say to me, I just, the thing I don't get about Christianity is why you don't believe that any two people who love each other can get married. And my immediate response was, why two? Why not three? Why not five? Why can't I be married to my wife and also my sister, and she's married to the dog? What's wrong with that? And I was doing it because I want to challenge her, them to think about, where did you get this idea from that it must be two? And of course, the answer is, civilizations have done that because they know that it takes two people to make a baby, but if that's the case, then your question about sexuality doesn't quite work, does it? Because that's also your challenge. So, and you're effectively doing that to try and turn the tables to get them to think, I'm not the only one with questions to answer here. I think you need to answer some questions as well. I was very young when my cousin first said to me, I don't think you should believe anything that you can't scientifically prove. He didn't quite say that, actually. He said, I, I, pretty much, he said, I, think, I, don't, I don't understand how you can believe something that you can't prove. But the, belief, the, the challenge there is they're saying, you should be able to prove scientifically what you believe. Of course, the obvious question to ask there is, can you prove that scientifically? You can't. You can't go into a lab and prove that you should have scientific proof for everything you believe. So sometimes asking a good question can turn the tables a bit and go, oh, we both believe things that we can't prove. The question is, can we, scientifically, are there other reasons to believe they're viable? Apart from science or maths or whatever. See, what we, we don't just need qu- answers for people's difficult questions. Sometimes we need questions for people's easy answers. And Jesus was a master at that. And then finally, questions identify how to serve people, as we've seen from Jesus. That my, my wife, just um, a few weeks ago, turns around to talk to the lady in the row behind her at church who she hasn't seen before. She asks her just two questions in this conversation. Is this your first time? Can I pray for you? And in the course of that conversation, this woman spills everything that's going on in her life and basically says, I am here because I'm desperate because the social workers took away my child this week. And that's why I'm here. And I don't know the backstories. I don't know if that was right or wrong, by the way, but I know that's what she said. Rachel, just in two questions, is able to say, can I pray for you? Yes. And then moves on and invites her on the Alpha course, which we've just heard about. And she's still on Alpha now, weeks later. She's exploring Christianity because somebody effectively said, how can I serve you, right? So you ask questions for all kinds of different reasons, and they can do a lot of different things, but they help us reach people in exactly the same way that they help Jesus reach people. So what I wanted to do with the rest of my time, if you see what I mean, is just to look at 10 examples of great questions Jesus asked that we can ask as well. Because unfortunately, we don't know what questions Jesus asked in this particular conversation with the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. But we do then have dozens and hundreds of examples of the questions Jesus did ask a lot. And I think we've got something to learn from those questions, which can help us reach people as well. And if you're not a believer here today, and you don't follow Jesus yet, these are good questions to think through, almost no matter what perspective you come from. I think they work well for Christians, but they're good for all of us, I think. And so here's my, based on nothing at all except my personal preferences, right? But these are 10 brilliant evangelistic questions that Jesus asks people. Number one, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? It's a good question because what Jesus is behind that question is, in order for you to doubt me, or in order for you to doubt Christianity, there are some things you believe that make you doubt. Right? Behind every doubt is actually a belief. And sometimes you have to doubt your doubts. That sounds like a weird thing to do, but sometimes you have to go, what am, why am I doubting 
And is that belief that it's based on true or not? Let me give you an example. Some people would say, the reason I doubt Christianity is because Christians have done such terrible things, which is true, we have. Now, behind that doubt, though, is the belief that if Christianity was true, Christians ought to be better than other people. And therefore, Christians shouldn't do bad things, because if, if Christianity was true, Christians wouldn't be bad people. And then you have to doubt that belief. You have to doubt your doubt. Say, is that actually true? So would it, is it the case, then, that if Christianity was true, Christians would be morally superior to other people? And I'm not sure it is, because Jesus himself said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. So I would expect Jesus to be surrounded by broken and messed up people, which present company included, he pretty much is, right? And to say anything different would be a little bit like going into Lewisham Hospital and saying, I don't think the NHS is very effective because this hospital's full of sick people. <laughs> like, of course it's full of sick people. That's why they came here. But you see, that's what, the, that's what this is, right? Let the reader understand. That's what this, this is. A ch- this is like a hospital in that sense. It's a group of people saying, I just couldn't do it. And I had to come to Jesus because I was a mess. And therefore, I would expect the church to be characterized by very similar sorts of failings that characterize everyone else. So I've got to doubt my doubt. And you can do that with all kinds of doubts. So we could talk more about that, but I don't have time right now. But why do you doubt? What is, what's the belief behind that doubt? Okay, number two, why are you afraid? Now, admittedly, in that form, it's intense to the point of being creepy. Right? I'm not suggesting you get on the bus and then say, can I just ask you, sir, why are you afraid? It's like, I'm afraid of you, among other things, coming up to me with weird, creepy questions, oh, odd person. But in that form, but there are much softer versions of the questions you can ask of people you know, right? You don't strike me as someone who scares these. Is there anything, does anything worry you? Do you have any concerns or anxieties? I, do you worry about the future, and if so, why? And what you'll often find is if you do that, there is one very, very predominant fear that people in this city have, even if it's not something they like to talk about, which is they're afraid of death. Either theirs, or someone they love, or both. And that doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily want to become a Christian at all. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it, it can be a helpful question because the Christian gospel, uniquely in the world, is the gospel of an answer to the deepest fear a lot of people in this city have, which is that they're going to die and they don't know what's going to happen when they do. And Christianity is the only place where you will hear, will hear a positive answer, which is, yes, having died, you will then be resurrected from the dead and reunited not only with the people you love, but with a new creation and a new body. No one else in the world believes that. Muslims don't believe that. Hindus don't. They believe that they might escape the body at death, but they don't believe they're going to get restored to a new physical existence with the people they love on a new world. They don't believe that. So even if people reject Christianity on thinking about this, they should want it to be true. So why are you afraid can really help. I'm, one of my favorite TV shows is Would I Lie to You, uh, the panel show where people, you know, you have to defend, you pick up a card, you read something out, and you have to defend it as if it's true even if it's not. David Mitchell is uh, doing that on the, about a redesign of his kitchen. And Charlie Brooker, who you may know, you know, the guy who wrote Bandersnatch and um, Black Mirror, those things. Charlie Brooker's on the other panel, and he asks David Mitchell at one point, what's the most complex thing you do in your kitchen? And David Mitchell pauses and goes, worry about death? Which I just thought was a fantastic answer. But a lot of people are like that. They go, what is actually the thing that preoccupies you when you don't tell anybody? I am... Worried about death. And Christianity has an answer for that. Why are you afraid? Number three, haven't you read? 
This is a great question. Jesus does this a lot, often to challenge people who really should know the Bible better than they do. And my experience is that that often is true of people who criticize Christianity. I think I was 16 the first time someone told me, don't believe in Christianity, Bible contradicts itself. And all I said was, where? And they had no idea. They just heard it. They didn't know where, why. They didn't know if it was true. They just heard it. I had this with Richard Dawkins, a well-known atheist and wrote The God Delusion. And in that book, he told a story about how Christianity is, the Bible is a riddle with errors because Matthew tells the story this way of the birth narrative and Luke tells the story this way and they're totally contradictory and it's because Matthew was like this and Luke was like this. And what he doesn't realize is that as he's telling it, every single detail in the story he'd given to Matthew was actually written by Luke and every detail he'd given to Luke was actually written by Matthew and he had got the totally upside down version of what happened and he could have found that out simply by going into wh smith's and opening a bible but he hadn't read it he'd been to an atheist website because you could see the footnotes and i thought haven't you read it can be helpful but it's not just helpful in challenging people it can also be helpful in inviting people there's a much softer version of that question oh haven't you read the bible oh i'd love to give you a copy of john's gospel I'm not, it doesn't work for everybody, but for a lot of people, if you invite them, say, this is the most widely read, popular, influential, most quoted, most circulated book in history ever, haven't you read it? Oh, I'll give you a copy, or I'll give you a copy of this bit of it. Not everybody will take you up on it, but some will. And often, as you've just heard from Nicky Gumbel, some people read the Bible and they become Christians. Because they come to, God works in their heart as they read it and they become to realize that this is true and Jesus is who he said he was. And so actually, haven't you read can have a, why haven't you read it, sort of a, a bit of a, a more a debatey sort of tone, or it can just have an invitation to read this incredibly powerful book. Number four, do you save this of your own accord or did others say it to you? That's a good question. It's a particularly important question sometimes to ask young people because it's just the virtue. I mean, we've all been young people, and some of us still are. But the virtue of being a young person is that you learn a lot from what other people tell you. But the downside of being a young person is you learn a lot from what other people tell you. And sometimes you don't think critically about whether or not it's true. And so there's all sorts of beliefs in our culture that people don't, haven't really thought about whether they're actually true. They just repeat them because they've heard them somewhere. Everything happens for a reason. Really? Follow your heart. Is that actually good advice or does that lead into bad places? I was born this way. You do you. Be whatever you want. Are those things true or are they just things I've heard? I want to show you a quick video which is a great example of how to ask, very politely ask questions of beliefs people hold that are not necessarily very joined up in their thinking. It's a bit cheeky and I'm not suggesting you should all go do it, but it's quite a fun example of the kind of thing I'm talking about and then we'll move on. So just, just play that video. Okay, so it's a bit mischievous, and I'm not saying we should all go do that, and there are obviously complex issues behind some of what's being said there, but it's quite a good example of how sometimes you're just saying to people, do you say that? Do you really think that? Or do you just heard it from other people? And I think it's a good model of, of doing that. Number five, one of Jesus' best ever questions, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? I mean, that's a... This is like back to serious, isn't it? What is it? Pro- is it any good at all in gaining everything the world has to offer, all the money, sex, power, and goodness knows what else you want, and then lose, you go into the ground and you die, and there's no God, no eternity? Is there any benefit to any of it? It's the book of Ecclesiastes in one sentence. It's a good question. Number six, where is your faith? It's a good question because obviously when Jesus asks it, he's often challenging the disciples. Why don't you believe? 
But there's another layer to that question, isn't there? Where is your faith, right? Assuming you're not putting your faith in Jesus, where do you put your faith? Because we all trust in something. We're all going to look to something beyond ourselves to deliver, to make promises, to secure our identity. What is your foundational belief that you can't prove? And why? Number seven, what do you seek? What are you looking for? What are you hoping for most in life? What's the thing that, for you, will make life complete? Al Mohler, an American um, Baptist president, uh, seminary president, says, I often ask these two questions evangelistically. What are you living for, and how's that working out for you? Which is basically, what do you seek? What are you after? There must be something that, for you, this is the thing that makes life worthwhile. What is that something? Number eight, who do you say that I am? Right? This is now we're beginning to zero in on it because Christian discussions about Christianity, in my experience, can be about everything except Jesus. Right? You get into debates about uh, sexuality and scripture and slavery and science and all these things, suffering, you know, and you spend all of your time talking about anything except Jesus. But there comes a point where you have to actually put the question, what do you think about Jesus? Him. Like, oh, forget all this other stuff. Just what do you think about Jesus? And for Jesus, that point comes halfway through the gospel story when he, in Mark 8 or Matthew 16, he turns to the disciples and he says, who do you think I am? That's the key question. You have to decide that. With all of the rat runs you can go down about all the other interesting issues, what do you think about Jesus? Is he crank? Is he Christ? Is he dead or alive? Is he mad, bad, God? What do you think about Jesus Christ? Who do you say that I am? Number nine, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love Jesus, that is? Not do you love Andrew? (laughs) Do you love me? Because the rubber hits the road here because there's a lot of people who will answer correctly to number eight but won't answer to number nine. Yeah, so you say, who do you think Jesus is? And they'll say, the Son of God. And then you say, do you love him? And they'll say, oh, no, not really. Do you love me? Jesus knows that's a question. It's not enough just simply to believe. You've got to love. You've got to see the good in Jesus and love him and see that his life wants to change yours and you've got to follow him. And then tenth, do you understand what I have done for you? What a beautiful question that is. That's a question where it no longer is just circling around with people who aren't followers of Jesus. This one really lands in people who are, which is many of us here this morning. Do you understand what I have done for you? Do we grasp the cross? Do we see what God has done in Christ? Do we get it? Do we really know it? And if you're anything like me, then the answer is probably kind of, but not entirely. No, I, I can't always grasp it, Jesus. I, I mean, I believe it. I know you died for me. I know you died to wash away my sin, and you rose again from the dead, and you've given me resurrection life, and I believe those things, but no, I don't really grasp it. There is more in the cross than I can see or hold at once, and the answer is no. I'm going to spend my whole life coming back again and again and going, I, I kind of get it, but not entirely. No, please, Jesus, would you help me understand what you have done for me more fully this week? That's my experience. It's probably yours. In some ways, that's the question that is still being spoken to us when we come into this building in the, on a Sunday morning. We're coming in going, Jesus, I don't quite, I need to hear again. Remind me, what is it that you've done? Let me see it in its richness and beauty. And Jesus knew we would struggle with that question. And he knew that some of us, many of us, are not great at asking clever questions or coming up with clever answers. We wouldn't have the agility to ask the questions that guy on the video was doing. We wouldn't have the eloquence to go on the one show and talk about Christian. We, we don't have those skills. Some of us might think, I'm not very good at that. But you know what I can do? 
I can come to the Lord's Supper and I can eat a bit of bread and I can drink a bit of juice or wine. I can do that. If I want to understand the gospel, I may not be able to read all the books and I may not be able to say all the clever stuff, but even when I can't, I can come empty-handed to God's table and say, Jesus, thank you for feeding me with your body and blood. I can do that. I may not understand it all, actually. You ask me to write an essay on the atonement, I'm not sure I could do it. I sometimes sing words in songs in the church and I don't quite know what they mean but I can come to his table and be fed by him. And so in that sense, the only question you need to answer today, if you're a follower of Jesus, is are you hungry? Do you want to know more of what Jesus has done for you? Because you may not be able to say it, but you can eat it and drink it. And then that means if you are repentant of your sins and you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the only question you need to ask is, do I want to know more? Do, am I hungry for Jesus? And if you are, then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's stand, shall we? Because sorry, it's going to come out and play. And then what we're going to do is in a moment, in, our own, in your own time, we're going to head to the table. We'll take bread, which represents the body of Jesus broken for you. We'll take the juice. We use juice in this church, which is the blood of Jesus shed for you. And as we do that, we feed on him. and We expect to encounter him in the bread and wine as we do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you for all the things he said. Thank you that without even trying, wisdom just flows out of him. Every time we read about Jesus, our, our minds are challenged. We realize how great he is and how wonderful he is, and we love him. And we pray now that as we come to the table, we would not just hear Jesus's questions for us, but we would receive again Jesus's answer to us, which is that his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead have given us everything we need. And we pray that as we come to you now, almighty God, you would feed us in our souls as well as in our bodies with the body and blood of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.